you're not familiar with it, is a, a book about judgment. And uh, it's been a significant part of Western culture for centuries. And uh, people understand it to be the apocalypse. And when we think apocalypse today, especially with all of our post-apocalyptic dystopias that exist in our pop culture, books and magazines and television and movies, uh, we think primarily of something bad happening to the earth and then we just kind of live in this state of badness. Uh, but that's really not what the apocalypse about. The word apocalypse means to reveal something, to break open mysteries. Um, and many times these, these apocalyptic visions in our culture do not reveal anything uh, except what uh, problems that exist in our society uh, caused. And so all of the the zombies and the um, nuclear holocausts and, and climate uh, and environmental destruction happens because of some, some human device. Um, but that's not the end of the story. There is judgment and destruction and catastrophe in the book of Revelation, and humans are a significant cause of it. Uh, but ultimately what is being revealed is a, a grander and glorious and beautiful and pain-free future that is found in the ruling of Jesus Christ in contrast to the ruling of the peoples of the earth that have destroyed humanity. And so, last week we did the introduction, and this week we're jumping ahead to chapter 17. Uh, we're not going in order from chapters 1 through 22, uh, because one, it would take a, a long time to do. And what I want to do here on this front end, after the introduction, if judgment is coming, I want to answer the question of why. What is being judged and what is, what is the judgment? And who is the judgment against? Because then we're going to go back, because the entire book has one specific purpose. To draw people out of the lifestyles and attitudes and purposes that are bringing judgment. All right, the first several chapters are letters to the churches at the time uh, all of the churches, seven churches, and it's a warning for those churches to pull away from hypocrisy and apostasy uh, in order to be free from the threat of judgment. And then really the rest of the book is a warning to the peoples of the earth to pull away from the same lifestyles and hypocrisies uh, in order to, to uh, ward off the coming judgment and to be free of that potential destruction. And so I thought that the best thing to do, since we can't read through the entire book in one sitting, because in the original context, you would sit down and listen to the book of Revelation being read in a, in a, like a house church type of community. And it would take you anywhere from an hour, an hour and a half to just sit and listen to the book of Revelation being read. And then it kind of all makes sense if you can get it at one sitting. What are you being judged for? What is, how, do you, how do you become free from the judgment? How do you escape the judgment? Um, and so, but we can't do all of that in one sitting because the last thing 
that you guys would probably be interested, oh, not the last thing, but for me to just sit up here and read Revelation for an hour and a half would be a challenge. And then there'd be questions, we'd be here all day. So I do want to answer the question, what is the judgment, why is the judgment, and who is the judgment against? And so we're going we're gonna to read four different little sections out of chapter 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation. And we're going to start with chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Now, uh, I, don't, I don't have the text on the screen. You should have some Bibles along the edge here. Are those out? We've got a few back there. If you need a Bible, Greg will get one of those to you. Just raise your hand. Or I'm sure you could find a Bible online. Okay, so Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And so that's the beginning of chapter 17, which it, it, it's culminated, the book to this point has culminated, um, it has described the judgments that God is going to unleash on this earth, and this is the description of the seventh bowl. Now, we'll have time to get into this in future messages, but there are seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls that describe the judgment of God, and each one um, is a description of the judgment, and each set of seven is an intensifying judgment. Okay, it's not seven progressive or seven chronological, and so here is kind of like the pinnacle of judgment. It's the last bowl and the bowls are the last of the series of seven things that describe the judgment of God. And the judgment is against this woman called Babylon, who is described as the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Okay? Now, we're going to break this metaphor. Revelation is like metaphor 99%. But it explains what the metaphors mean. And so let's start with mother, okay? Mother is that which produces offspring. There needs to be a father. That's not the section of text we are in right now. That will come. We're going to address who the father is at a later, later sermon. So the mother produces offspring. And the offspring are two things. One, prostitutes. And second, 
earth's abominations or all of earth's evil and detestable things. Now, why use the term prostitute? Well, first of all, basically the text is saying that this woman named Babylon is the source of all corruption and evil on the face of the earth. I mean, the mother of all abominations, the mother of all prostitutes. Why the metaphor of prostitute? Now, when we think of prostitution at this point in our culture, we think primarily of of people that are coerced or forced or kidnapped into human trafficking, okay, and are forced into uh, sexual slavery. That's what we think of when we think of people that are, that are in prostitution. That is not the idea of this text, okay? The idea of this text is um, a person who willingly enters into prostitution, the selling of sex for economic gain, all right? The selling of sex for economic gain. Uh, it's not coerced. It's not kidnapped. It is a willing decision to say, you know what? I could make a lot of money using my body and selling my body for sex. Now, we have a few places in the United States that have legal prostitution. And so there is uh, research that can be done. Uh, You can study what goes on in those counties. And there are um, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, women that are making $10,000 a week in legal prostitution that they have decided to enter into. Now, prostitution is a metaphor for a broader idea, because literally the text is describing all rulers and nations of the earth and all dwellers of, peop- dwellers of the earth, so all people, have engaged in sexual immorality with the prostitute. Okay? It's a metaphor. And the metaphor is, is, of, of prostitution is people that are willing literally to sell themselves for economic security. People that are willing to compromise their identity and their being and their health for economic security. That's the broader idea, okay? The second idea... Um, is that of, of earth's abomination. So all detestable or evil things are coming from this woman, this woman named Babylon. And so what they're saying is, is that there is a corruption that this woman is bringing that is causing people to compromise themselves for economic gain, and that dynamic brings upon the evils of the earth. That's what, that's what it is saying. So Babylon is selling something that intoxicates. The rulers of the earth and the dwellers of the earth are intoxicated. So once, once we as humanity have have taken of whatever the prostitute is selling, which is imaged in her sexual favors and in this, this goblet, this goblet of wine, we, as soon as we enter into it, it consumes us. There's nothing else that we can think about. It literally becomes an addiction. 
like alcoholism or substance abuse or any form of addiction, sex addiction, any form of addiction. It's not just narrowly those things. It's any form of addiction that completely captures, captures our hearts and captures our minds. Now, why use Babylon? Why use Babylon? Well, the first occurrence of Babylon, biblically, is in Genesis chapter 11. And uh, this is post-flood in the Genesis narrative, okay? So the peoples of the earth are all gathered in one place, and they come to this place called Babel, and they build a tower. And they gather themselves together and organize themselves together as a people, um, which is government, it's government, human government, and they use bricks and mortar, clay and straw to build this tower, which is technology, okay? It's rudimentary technology, but it's construction engineering, it's architecture, it's material uh, engineering, okay? So you've got government and you've got technology coming together, and here's what they say. Let us build a tower that goes to the heavens. Let us make for ourselves a name. Let us, let us magnify and hold up and glorify us. And lest we be spread over the face of the earth. Now, earlier in Genesis, God says, I want you to multiply and fill the earth. I don't want you restricted to one place. I want you to multiply and fill the earth. And you as human beings have been made in my image. You don't have a name other than the name that I have given you. And you are given, you are given the name, you are associated with me. So human beings at Babel wanted, through their own purposes, their own ingenuity, their own government, their own technology, to make a name for themselves and to develop and determine their own purpose. They didn't want to pursue God's purpose. They didn't want to be associated with God's name. Their purpose, their name, their glory, independent of God. That's the first occurrence. Later, Babylon comes on the scene, and Babylon is the, at this time, under King Nebuchadnezzar, historical figure, historical nation, uh, historical event. He comes and he lays siege to Jerusalem, okay, Israel has, by and large, abandoned God, and they have worshipped the gods of the nations around them. They have rejected God who brought them out of Egypt. And God said, if you, are, if you abandon me, I'm going to bring in other nations, and they're going to take you into exile. Assyria had done that with the northern ten tribes of Israel 150 years earlier. And now, Jeru now Nebuchadnezzar is coming in, Babylon is coming in, and they lay siege to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and they take all of the people captive and just leave a few stragglers to take care of the land. And so Babylon is this force that brings judgment and punishment upon evil, on, on Israel. And so Babylon, from a biblical narrative standpoint, is, is a force opposed to God and to his purposes. It is a, it is a force that seeks its own glory and power, its own purposes, rather than the purposes of God and, and his glory and his might and his power. And if you can remember the judgment that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, which we'll go over, which Lawrence will go over after I'm done with this series. 
um, Nebuchadnezzar looks out over his estates and over his nation and looks at his, his wealth and his power and his status and he says, he literally says, I am, I am the greatest. Look who I am and look what I have created. And God, for seven years, puts a, a spirit upon him causing him to act like an animal and to eat and to live out in the woods and in the wilderness and to eat grass he lives like a beast for seven years. And after the seven years is up, God frees him from it. And Nebuchadnezzar says, there is none greater than the Lord God. There is none greater than him. So that is kind of the biblical narrative of, of Babylon. And if you look at Babylon, in terms of what is how the text describes, we first see that Babylon is sitting on a scarlet beast on many waters. And the Scarlet Beast has many blasphemous names, which is just a way of saying that this, that this beast is opposed to God. This beast is opposed to Jesus Christ. And this beast has seven heads and ten horns. Now, we're going to have a couple messages on, on the Antichrist and the false prophet and the dragon. Okay, these images of the personification of evil. These images that have to do with the, the, the being called Satan in the Bible. The adversary. The adversary of God. And so there's this woman Babylon sitting on this beast. And the beast represents uh, the the people and the efforts of Satan to oppose God. And so you have this, this beast which becomes a, a, a political and governmental force over the nations of the earth. And that's the, the seven heads represent kingdoms and the word seven, uh, the number seven represents totality. And so you have, you have the kingdoms of the earth and the rulers of the earth um, in this opposition to God. And this woman Babylon is sitting on this beast. Now this woman Babylon is not the political force. The political, the political entities represented by the beast. Again, I'm, I spent a whole series or message or two on, on that. I don't have time today. So there is a, a political force global political force represented by the kingdoms and rulers of the world, okay? We use the word presidents and prime ministers now rather than the word kings, although some nations in our world at this time have kings. So this, this woman is sitting on this beast, which means that she's got a great degree of control and influence in the political structures of the world. They're in cahoots. They're working together. The, the political and governmental entities on the earth support the woman, and the woman has some power and influence over the political and governmental structures on the planet. She is wearing purple and scarlet, adorned with precious gems and pearls, giving her uh, a, an image of luxury and royalty. She is holding a cup filled with the abominations and impurities of sexual immorality, which means that she is offering something that is intoxicating, that is attractive. She is beautiful. In fact, the next verse that we didn't read, verse 7, uh, John, who is the Apostle John, Jesus' best friend, according to the Gospel, 
And he marvels at her. And he's like, whoa. She is beautiful. She is attractive. She has a lot to offer. She is powerful. And the angel that is revealing these things to John rebukes John. Why do you find her so attractive? Let me tell you who she is. Her name is on her forehead, Babylon, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And she is drunk with the blood of the saints. She is drunk with the blood of the saints. So, so her intoxication, her intoxication, ultimately, what controls her, what she's addicted to, is being opposed to God. Is being opposed to God. That's what intoxicates and controls her. So she is offering something. And that something brings people to reject God and to become like the people of Babylon. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We are going to reach the heavens. We're going to reject the purposes of God and we're going to seek our own. And Babylon comes to destruction, verses 15 through 18 of chapter 17. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. So the kingdoms and rulers of the earth will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until, well, until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And so Babylon is destroyed. But it is not destroyed by God directly. The kings and the rulers of the earth, the nations of the world, get to the point where they are fed up with the influence that this woman Babylon has on them. They are, they are tired of the control that she has over them. They want complete power and control. But they see that the people of the earth are not drawn to them as political leaders. Okay, political leaders, we're not naturally drawn to them. We're drawn to what they can do for us, right? We vote for the people that we believe is going to be most beneficial for us and for the society. Them as people we don't even know. Well, to this point in history, the political leaders have used Mystery Babylon for the influence of the people and they get tired of it. So they destroy Babylon. Whoever or whatever she is, because again, it's all metaphor to this point. They destroy it because it's a competitor and they want the devotion of the people themselves. So if we ask ourselves this question, who is Babylon? What is Babylon? What gets destroyed? It really becomes clear when we turn to the next chapter, chapter 18, 
verses 9 through 19. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linens, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. So who are those that mourn Babylon's destruction? Kings and merchants and retailers? And those that ship goods, kings, merchants, and those who ship and trade goods. So if we look at the key characteristics of Babylon, yes, the metaphor is that of a prostitute, but that's not, that's not who Babylon is. Babylon is global in nature. It's not a single city. It is worldwide. It is every nation and every people many waters. It is not a few isolated people or kingdoms that are taken in by the intoxication and immoralities of Babylon. It is the rulers and the common people. It's everyone. It's global in nature, and it is ubiquitous. Those that are most affected are national rulers, global corporations, wholesalers, retailers, and shipping companies. She is luxurious, which means she is characterized by material abundance. She is sensual, which means she appeals to our senses. And she is characterized by idolatries and blasphemies against God. And she is guilty of bloodshed. She is guilty of bloodshed in the pursuit of 
what she offers. And so what is Babylon? What is Babylon? Babylon is the idol of economic security. That's what Babylon is. That's what Babylon is. It's the idol of economic security. Why do I use the term idol? Because, you know, when we read the Old Testament, we can, or when we read ancient literature, we know that people craft, and some societies around the nations still practice what we consider idolatry. They make little statues out of gold or wood, some type of precious metal or stone, and they literally believe that their God inhabits that idol. And that is a type of idolatry. Ancient Israel did it when they made the golden calves. They said, hey, Israel, here, are, here is your God who delivered you from Egypt. They had an idea of God, but they put the idea of God into a physical form, and that, is, that physical form is an idol. But that is a restricted and narrow view of an idol. Tim Keller says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you, only what God can give. Tim Keller in his book called Counterfeit Gods. And so what is Babylon? Babylon is any institution or facet of culture that is characterized by pride, economic overabundance, persecution, and idolatry. It's part of Babylon. It's from Craig Beale, who's considered probably one of the best scholars in the world in the book of Revelation. And he says this as well, possession of wealth is not the reason for God's judgment of Babylon. Babylon isn't judged because she's rich. The cause lies rather in the arrogant use of it and trust in the security that it brings, which is tantamount to idolatry. When we place our well-being in money, and in the economic security, and in the social security, and in, in the, the power that it brings, and the sense of peace that it brings. When, when that is where we are getting our sense of peace and security, money has become our idolatry. It has become our God. Paul says in Colossians, put to death, therefore, greed. In Colossians 3, 8, I think. And he says, because that's idolatry. And persecution and violence, because the text says that, that the woman is drunk on the blood of the martyrs of Jesus Christ. And all, it says in verse 24 of chapter 18, all who have been slain on the earth, their blood is found in Mystery Babylon. Their blood is found. What he's saying is that, that people's pursuit of economic gain when somebody gets in their way, when somebody proclaims a different God, when somebody proclaims, no, money and economic security and the means to have those things are not what we should pursue for our life goals. You need to be pursuing God and his son Jesus Christ for your life goals. And then according to Jesus, everything will be provided for you. You want economic security? Pursue Jesus, is what Jesus says, is what God says. You'll have peace and you'll be provided for. But when you say to people, hey, st 
stop pursuing the things that you're pursuing for God and you'll get in their way. Or if people get in their way of pursuing what they want economically, they will kill people. There's a movie that just came out this week called Silence. Um, Martin Scorsese film. And it is a film based upon a book written by Luke Thompson, is he here today? He recommended the book to me, so I'm reading the book. Um, it's a Japanese author who's won a lot of literary awards, and it's a book that Martin Scorsese has read many times over the course of his life. He says that there are very few books that have as much influence on him. In the, in the book Silence, in the movie that came out this week, stars Liam Neeson and, and other people and, um, familiar with. The book is about these Portuguese missionaries in the 1600s that went to Japan, that went to Japan, and it's the story of their abuse by the Japanese government because they were a threat to the state. The message of the gospel was a threat to the state. Their message, the message of the gospel was a threat to the economic institutions of Japan at the time. And Japan obviously isn't unique. There has been perse persecution for the people of God for centuries, for thousands of years, because they get in the way of what they're pursuing. And it's not just the saints, quote, it's just not the people of God that are killed in the pursuit of economic gain. Sex, human trafficking is the destruction of people's lives for economic gain by others. All kinds of examples of where people in pursuit of economic gain bring destruction to others. Persecution and violence accompany the idolatry, for that is the consequence of anyone that stands against the pursuit of economic security and self-sufficiency. And so the, the, the text says, for us, all people, not just the people of God, but the people of the world, come out, come out from Babylon. Come out from Babylon. There's a book out called Affluenza. I've quoted from it a few times. It's in its third edition, hundreds of thousands of copies. The latest edition is 2014. The first one was 2001. They say this, a powerful virus has infected American society, threatening our wallets, our friendships, our families, our communities, and our environment. We call the virus Affluenza. This is, just a, this is a sociology book. And because the United States has become the economic model for most of the world, the virus is now loose on every continent. Affluenza's costs and consequences are immense, though often concealed. Untreated, the disease can cause permanent discontent. You're never satisfied. In our view, the affluenza epidemic is rooted in the obsessive, almost religious quest for economic expansion that has become the core principle of what is called the American dream. It's rooted in the fact that our supreme measure of national progress is that quarterly ring of the cash register we call the gross domestic product. It's rooted in the idea that every generation will be materially wealthier than its predecessor and that somehow each of us can pursue that single-minded end without damaging the countless other things we hold dear, including people. It doesn't work that way. 
the contention of this book, and again, you guys, these are not religious or spiritual biblical authors. These are sociologists. The contention of this book is that if we don't begin to reject our culture's incessant demands to buy now, we will pay later in ways that we can scarcely imagine. The bill is already coming due. And obviously, the final coming due of the bill is the destruction of Babylon. And so in the final little passage here, chapter 8 verses, excuse me, chapter 18 verses 4 through 8, this is the call of God to come out from this, to come out from a life directed primarily for your own pursuit of economic security and your own name. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, chapter 18, verse 4, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning." Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So what does it mean to come out from Babylon? Especially if it's true that the American economic system is the heart of what is being transported around the world in terms of an economic model. If we are in the heart of this system, now I'm not saying America is Babylon. Again, the Babylon is this system. It's this system that America does a really good job of representing. Well, we can't withdraw from economic activity. All right? It's not saying that. It's not saying to sell everything you have. You know, when Jesus comes across the rich man in the Gospels, the rich man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you have to follow all of the commandments. And the, the rich young ruler Oh, I have honored my father and my mother. I have not, so, you know, he lists off some of the Ten Commandments, not all of the Ten Commandments. He lists off some, but the ones he leaves out are all of the commandments that have anything to do with loving God and rejecting covetousness or greed. And so Jesus tells him, well, okay, you've done these things. I want you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the guy can't do it. And the guy can't do it. And he walks away. Jesus isn't asking all of us to sell everything that we have. Jesus is telling us not to love money. That's what he was telling the, the rich man. He's not, saying not to, he's not saying to be negligent in our career or in the pursuit of making money. There are rich people in the Gospels that follow Christ. There are rich people in the stories in the book of Acts that follow Christ. There are rich people that are mentioned in the letters and the epistles that follow Christ. David Brooks, I was listening to him on uh, NPR, this is probably over a year ago. 
He's a, a New York Times columnist and a uh, frequent uh, pundit on public radio, and I, th- I think he goes to Tim Keller's church. And he says this, sin is disordered lives. Disorder, excuse me, sin is disordered loves. Sin is disordered loves. See, because if you look at the things that the prostitute is associated with, sex is a gift from God. All of those things listed in terms of what the merchants sell are good things, creations of God. Good things, things that God has created. It is when those things become the most important thing, it's when those things become the ultimate thing, then those things become God. Those things become idols. And so the solution, the solution is to love God. Jesus says you cannot love God and love money. You can only serve one. Love God. Use money. Jesus, through Paul, says that the love of money is the root of all evils. So quit loving money. Quit loving money. Love God. How do we love God? We recognize that God is the means and the source of everything that we have. He is the provision of your security. He has given you life. He provides sustenance. He provides a house. He provides food. He provides clothing. He provides a spouse. He provides children. He provides friends. He provides air and water. Everything that we need to live. God is the source of those things. If we want to experience the, the pleasures of sexual intimacy, there is a way that God has designed for us to do that and to enjoy those things without the trouble that comes when it's outside of the context of marriage with a trusted spouse in a covenant relationship. If we want to enjoy um, our money, we work hard for it in a legal way, in a good occupation, and then we receive it, and because we don't love it, because it's not the source of our happiness, we don't give ourselves to it, we use it in accordance to God's commands to provide for the needs that we have as families and to meet the needs of others. We set some aside for our our children and our, our grandchildren. These are ways that money then becomes a tool. We love God and we worship God. Not money, not economic success, not our careers. God has to be the first and foremost love of our life. And when he's not, we will eventually pursue and worship Mystery Babylon and will be destroyed with her. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this text. Thank you for the challenge, really, of the metaphors and the, the challenge of the words and really the, the vividness of, of what is going on here because these are indeed the things that are going on in our very lives and our very culture. And, and we appreciate you pointing out really the harshness of the reality of the evil of those things. So God, we pray that our hearts and our minds would... Um, 
will be captivated by you and that we could indeed come out of Babylon. In Jesus' name, amen.